We are continuing on in our Immerse Prophets series. Those of you that are note takers or like to jot down your, your thoughts, uh, you'll find those on the insert with the little orange colored banner on the top of it. Coincidentally, that orange is the same orange that's in the graphic that comes from the book. So I didn't, I didn't come up with that. Someone else did. All right. That's, that's where that came from. So that we have this subconscious like connection between things. And that somehow is how, sometimes how our brain works. Uh, last week, we started with kind of introducing this journey deep into the prophetic books of the Bible. And we started with the prophet Amos. And the three prophets that those of you that were, have started on the reading plan um, that we read last week were Amos, Hosea, and Micah. And so we're going to focus on Micah today. Um, all three of those were sort of called by God to bring a word to either one of the two parts of the kingdom, kind of in the same 20-year span, somewhere around 760 to 740 B.C. or so. Coincidentally enough, it's not really a coincidence, uh, one of the major prophets was also getting going about this time, the prophet Isaiah. And what book do you think we're starting to read this week? Isaiah. It's like it was planned out, and it was. Um, At this time, God's people are still not following him as Lord. That was part of what we kind of uncovered, and we we sort of realized that, um, and that's one of the reasons the prophets are sent. They're not following him as Lord, um, the people. And so God continues to send his prophets to deliver a message of truth, and often it included a lot of warnings or woes, but it also would include words of hope for the people because one thing is true there, are, there were lots, two things are true, there were lots of faithless people, but there were some who remained faithful to God, even in the worst of times. As we said last week, the kingdom of Israel, at this point, still exists in two parts, where about ten generations past Solomon, when Solomon was the one who built the, the glorious temple in Israel when it was one. And by this point, it is broken and fallen apart, the nation that is, We have the northern nation, and their capital is Samaria. We have the southern nation of Israel called Judah, and their capital is still in Jerusalem. And God sends Micah to speak a convicting word and a hopeful word to both groups. Last week when we covered Amos, Amos was from the south, and he was sent to the north. Now we have a prophet who is sent to both groups to speak a word. And this is where Micah comes in. Let me read verse 1 from chapter 1. The Lord gave this message to Micah of Moresheth during the years when Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. The visions he saw concerned both Samaria and Jerusalem. As an aside, one of the reasons I like the audio Bible is that I get to hear someone else say all the names first, which I find incredibly helpful rather than trying to slog through all of these names, because I don't know about you, but th- these names are hard. They're, they're not as familiar to our ears, you know? Um, so I appreciate that part. Micah is sent to deliver a word, and his word is extremely blunt. And this is God's assessment 
Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? And God says, the sins of the nation begin in its capital, Samaria. That's his judgment against the north. And then he goes on and says, when where is the center of idolatry in Judah, the south? And what do you think he says? It's capital, Jerusalem. That everything starts with the centers of power and filters down and out to the rest of the nation. And he lays responsibility at the highest levels and specifically at the leaders for the sins of the nation and their failure to repent and follow God's ways. If you read through Micah chapters 2, 3, even into 4, he goes through a whole laundry list of what their offenses were before God. He details how the rich oppress the poor. They steal from them. They evict the poor and put them out on the street. They take things by fraud and violence. It says they hate good and they love evil. They hate justice and they twist the truth. They have built on a foundation of murder and corruption. They make decisions based on bribes and they pervert justice based on who can pay. Now we can't make exact one-to-one correspondences between ancient Israel and our society today, but we can certainly see some parallels. You don't have to be Maybe you're living on the moon if if you don't see any parallels. All of this is not the present nor the future that God had planned for his people. It's not his desire for his people. So, as we learned in Amos last week, he must punish them, and now he will be sending them into exile if they don't change their ways. So they'll be sent into exile, but this is where there's a word of hope. God in his mercy knows that there will be some who stay true to him. Sometimes scripture will call it that faithful remnant. And he makes a promise that the faithful remnant, even though they're in exile, that they're suffering under oppression by a, in a foreign land, that those who are able to return, God they will be able to witness that God is going to send them a ruler to save them. Who do you think that is? Yeah, yeah, we know Jesus. That's the, that's the good Sunday school answer too. All right, let me read um, verse, uh, chapter five, verse two, and then part of verse five. This is part of what the Lord says. This is his word of hope. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. Verse 5, and he will be the source of peace. For a small remnant of faithful people who didn't know a lot of peace and who saw unbelievable oppression and corruption. This would have been a profound word of hope right before they're about to be sent into exile. But first, God has to make a case against his children. And he has a case to make against his wayward children. 
And when you get to chapter 6, which is where that verse that we just sang about is centered right in the middle of, the whole chapter itself is presented kind of like a divine lawsuit. God is making a case against his people. And that was one of those forms that the prophets sometimes spoke in, presenting a case where God would outline the charges, there would be witnesses, and then there would be the rendering of a verdict. But since humanity isn't a very good jury, and certainly is not a good judge, and is never impartial, God presents his case metaphorically to the mountains and the hills. Let me read chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. That's, that's that moment when we had just a little bit of snow on Mount Diablo. I thought that was a nice picture. It only happens every so often, so I had to snap that up. God makes his case to the mountains because he knows he created the mountains and the hills. They're the only impartial witness to the case that he's making against his people. God asks some rhetorical questions and he demands an answer. Verse 3, Oh my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me! When I hear those words of God, they sound like words of grief. God is grieved at how his people have turned away. It kind of reminds me of Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin. What's that question that God asks first after they sinned? He looks around in the garden. He says, where are you? He so desperately wants to be in relationship with humanity that he's going to ask that question that you just feel kind of the heart of it. God wants to continue the relationship with his people and specifically that special relationship with his people that he has called. But the question that he asks shows how much damage has happened to that relationship. Friends, we know this is true even in our human relationships that sometimes even when we want to make things work out, Sometimes the damage is too great for our ability. Certainly not for God's ability. And we feel that pain and that discomfort and that heartache. It's the same kind of pain, although more so, that God feels towards us. God actually continues on, though. He doesn't let his people off the hook. He doesn't allow them to start to make excuses or try to explain, well, you know, we weren't really doing anything that bad, Lord. He doesn't even want them to get or give them space to get defensive. Instead, he provides the answer, the truthful answer of what they have done. Chapter 6, 4, and 5. Let me read that for us. For I brought you out of Egypt... And redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember my people? 
how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed, and how Balaam, son of Baor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. See, God did everything already. His question, what have I done? Well, he's actually done everything for them. He chose them. He engaged with them. He rescued them. He led them and he redeemed them. He provided leaders. He thwarted evil plans. He caused a foreign prophet, instead of cursing them, to bless them. And he taught them well as they wandered in the desert. Acacia Grove is that place, that last place that they camped at before they finally crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. And God was teaching them the whole time, never letting them go or letting them down. God says all this not to condemn them, but to say, I'm the one who has saved you and can save you. Turn to me is his ultimate attempt. The problem is, is most of the people will not. So he says that a response is needed. And the response that he most wants from his people is not business as usual. He does not want more rituals, routines, or regular patterns. Let me read verses 6 and 7 from chapter 5. It says, what can we bring to the Lord? What kind of offerings should we give him? Should we bow before God with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? I recommend no. The answer is rhetorically no. All right? Just so we're clear... And you can take that, that, that crazy look off your face, the, the, the look of worry and anxiety. But one of the reasons that God says that is some of the other, the other cults that followed other gods did engage in child sacrifice. He's trying to position his people as utterly and completely different from the cultures that they were surrounded What God is saying is he's not primarily interested in making a longer checklist for us. He's not saying you have to come with a little list that says go to church, wave my hands more vigorously, sing loudly, close my eyes intently, make sure my tithe is to the penny, make sure I look nice and make sure that I'm noticed. No, he's not actually interested in any of those things primarily. All of those can be good things, but they're secondary. They come from the inner heart relationship that he so desperately wants from his people. All of those rituals, by this point in the history of Israel, or most of them, had become idolatrous. They had become a means to an end. They were going through the steps, wanting to be known for, look how holy I am, look how religious I am but they had no connection with the living God. Some of our practices can become idolatrous too. 
They can become empty rituals if we're not paying attention. They can become things that we just do by habit, but that fail to actually penetrate and connect our heart to God's. It's something we always have to be aware of as people. We can take the best things that God gives us and turn them into objects of scorn, things that can be our downfall if we're not careful. Now, the good news is we don't have to be overly worried and anxious about this because this is one of the functions of the church that we're in this together and we have each other to lift us up, to spur us on to act, to correct us when necessary, and ultimately to draw us all closer into the presence of God. All those rituals that the Israelites were engaged in might have looked good. But the Lord had a different starting point in mind for them that would actually lead them to want to do all those other things after the fact. In fact, we know this because we sang a verse, a song about it, based on one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, but also one of the same verses that is, uh, I would say, not as followed. Quoted often, followed less. What the Lord desires from his people. Verse 8, chapter 6. No, O people. This is that answer, no, about do I sacrifice my firstborn children or the other types of offerings? No, that's not what God is looking for. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right. That means justice. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To do what is right or to do justice. To love mercy. Sometimes it says to show mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. My sisters and brothers, this verse is a wake-up call to action for the church in every era. Both when it was first spoken and when it is spoken today. If God has been faithful and he went through the whole list of all the things that he's already done for his people, then what is the response of someone who loves him, who wants to be a faithful follower and worship him? The Lord has told us what is good and what he's looking for. God opens up his heart. It's like God writing almost like a love letter to his people saying, this is what, I, this is what I'm all about. This is what I want to see from you. All the rest of that stuff, that'll happen but it'll flow from that heart that you develop to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. This is what drives real devotion to God. He doesn't want more religious folks. He wants more heart folks. If you're looking for religion, there are plenty of options for you. If you are looking for a relationship with the one true living God, there is one option, Jesus Christ. Now, there are several um, friends of mine who have actually done really extensive work with this verse to try to help the whole covenant church um, to appreciate and respond to the depth of what God is saying to his people here. So I'm going to use some of, some of their words and definitions today to help us all learn 
together. Why are these three phrases so important? Well, we're actually going to look at them in reverse order. So the last is first. Walking humbly with God. And here's the first point that we can draw from that. Why walk humbly with God? Because it increases our compassion. When you walk humbly with God, you develop more of a heart for the things that motivate and concern God. Now, there are a lot of things that walking humbly with God can and should do, but I want to just focus on this increasing our compassion. I was thinking about taking this walk idea, you know, the whole walking with God. When you go on a walk with someone, what do you do? Yeah, you might talk. What do you talk about? How the warriors are not doing great? You know, maybe. I'm sorry, Ray. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. Season of exile. Season of exile. You talk. You share a life. You get, maybe you develop a deeper relationship with someone. Um, I have a friend who, uh, his wife works as a trainer in a gym, and actually some of the people that she helps train and walks next to on the treadmill have become some of her closest friends. And he was reminding her just a couple of weeks ago, you know, this is your church right here. This is like your mission field, the people that you're standing and walking, you know, trying to motivate them to keep going on the treadmill. And yet while they're doing that, they're sharing life. They're learning about the intimate details of one another's life. They're getting to know one another. You learn more about what that person cares about. What are you about? There's only so much that we can do even here on a Sunday morning. It's one of the reasons why we do things like potlucks, why I encourage you to do growth groups, why I encourage you to get together, you know, have coffee together, exercise together, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, garden together, all those things. But you start to see the world from, through their experience when you walk with someone. And as we do this with God, we're better able to express the kind of closeness that he looks for. And that motivates him through how we act. The more we live by walking with God, the more sensitive we become to how he walks. His ways actually become more of our ways. And we start to see with eyes fresh as God sees. Hi, little Isaac. It's good to see you this morning. We start to see what God sees. We see not just the hurt that God sees, but we also see often the beauty that is underneath that hurt that sometimes we can't quite see. We just see the exterior. It's only by walking with someone that you really get to know what's inside and what is possible beneath the pain and brokenness. It's why I, I, I don't like to give up on people. Why I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And yeah, there are going to be times and there have been times where sometimes that will burn you. But far more, people will surprise you when you push past the pain and the hurt and you stick with them to see the beauty that is underneath. It says that we were all created. God created all of us in the image of God. Now that image of God is within us. For some, it's really buried deep. And it's hard to see, but it is there. We might not be able to redeem that, but that's 
Good. It's not our job to redeem that. It's God's job. Thankfully, we don't have to take on that job. That's what he sent Christ to do. Yeah. Can I, can I ask the word humble? I think when you're talking about, you, know, you see this, this part, you know, the, the image of God in every person. To walk in humility is to have, keep an accurate perception of who you are, an accurate perception of who God is. Yeah. Even in that, in, in seeing the image of God in somebody, it's our job to see it and to recognize yeah. it and honor it. It's God's job to redeem it. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, humbly or humility is that important word. That's it. We're not just like, you know, we're not just kind of going like this with God. You're just saying, you know, patting him on the back, saying, wow, what a great, what a great, you know. We're walking in a certain way where we acknowledge who we are and who God has created us to be and who God is and what God is calling us to be in this world. It's an appropriate acknowledgement of this relationship. Walking humbly with God increases our compassion. In Matthew 9, 36, it says that Jesus saw the crowds and felt compassion. He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless. I think the NIV says they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. This is how Jesus saw all of these people and see they had been coming to him for healing for something that was missing in their life maybe it was a tangible or maybe it was something spiritual Jesus saw the crowds and he felt compassion this is where we learn a little bit more about what compassion is and looks like compassion is identify is when we identify with and join in the suffering of others. When we identify with and join in the suffering of others. Now this does not mean that we experience exactly what that other person is experiencing. We can't do that. But to extend compassion, to see people as God sees them, means that we acknowledge that what they are experiencing is painful. And we want to reach out to them and join in or with their suffering. When Jesus saw this in the people that came to him, he didn't just feel compassion, but it moved his soul. He actually felt their pain as if it was his own. And that is the same kind of heart quality that God is trying to develop in us as people today. That instead of our first instinct, which might be to get mad or irritated, that we actually take a step back. Can I see the pain and suffering, the situation that someone else is going through? Now, maybe you'll still get mad. Lord knows I've gotten mad too. And you might get angry about things. But developing this heart of compassionate, when we are compassionate, we display the heart of God within the world. When you show compassion, you're actually carrying the love of God and putting it into action in our world. Why did Jesus do this? Well, it's part of the character of God. But he did this as well because it's this call to sacrificially love others for us in the name of Jesus. I listed two questions uh, on the, 
on the outline. Two questions that we can ask and reflect upon if you are at a point where you need to increase your sensitivity to compassion or your development of compassion. One, the first question is a where question, and the second question is a what question. Where do we see brokenness? You might add, in our world, in our life, in our family, all those things. And not just where do we see brokenness, but what is our obedient response as people of God to that brokenness? This is that heart of compassion that we want to work to grow in us. And friends, this is not easy, and it takes work and effort. You will not develop compassion by watching an as-seen-on-TV 30-minute infomercial and four easy payments of 1995. No, you only develop compassion by seeing and engaging the brokenhearted. And they might be in your right. They might be in the same household as you. So that's the first, all about walking humbly with God increases our compassion. Second, the phrase that was in the middle of that verse 8 is about loving mercy, to love mercy or to show kindness. To love mercy is quite simply this, to extend the unconditional love of God outward. To love or show mercy is to extend God's unconditional love outward. Why is this the case? This is the case because mercy is a relationship word. It's a word that you you know if you've been here over the last couple of years. If you aren't sure why God commands us to show it, to extend it outward... It's because mercy is that quality or character of relationship that God has already extended to each of us, that he's already shown to us. What do you think the word mercy means? We have, we have someone who fairly regularly puts it on his name tag, and it's a word that we have covered before. But when you go back and you look at this verse as it was first written, the word mercy is chesed. It's that relationship word about how God interacts with us. That character that God has shown to us. It's God's heart poured out upon us. It's that word that it's hard for us to translate, to really capture it because it can mean so many things. It can mean compassion, mercy, loyalty, devotion, steadfast love, remaining faithful to the agreement and promises that God makes with his people. All of those things are rolled into that one word. When we show mercy, it's an action, it's a verb. When we love mercy, it means that we are engaged in responding to other people the way God has already responded to us, with total grace, all mercy, everything that we don't deserve, that's how he wants us to treat other people. 
Friends, I don't always like that because that's hard, especially when people don't seem like they deserve it. The reality is that God isn't concerned about that. He said, you didn't deserve it, and I still showed you mercy. When I was reading that, that just, that just knocked, me on my, that knocked me on my butt for a few minutes. This relationship that God has, it's not about warm fuzzies, but being connected at the deep heart level. Hosea 6.6, one of the other prophets we read this week in the Immerse reading in this verse says, I want you to show love or show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want your burnt offerings. You know all those cows they used to bring? All those sheep, those goats, if you were a little bit on the poor side, pigeons? God said, yeah, that was all well and good back in the day, but what I really want is your heart. All of that was designed to lead you to give me your heart. That's what Hosea shares that Micah echoes. You know, Jesus actually himself quotes this verse from Hosea when he is called out by the religious police, the Pharisees. They were the legalists who wanted to cross every T and dot every I and make sure you were following every little regulation of the law. And he calls Matthew to come as his disciple. Matthew is a tax collector, one of the boo, the hated people. And then he goes and he eats with Matthew and his friends, who, who the Pharisees called what? Sinners. Those people. And that's what Jesus does. And this is the verse that he quotes back to the Pharisees, that they don't really get it. And then he does it again Later on, when he and his disciples go and they do what? They pick grain from a field because they're hungry. But they do it when? (gasps) They do it on the Lord's Day. They do it on the Sabbath. And Jesus says this verse to the Pharisees again. Teaching them and us that forming relationships and meeting real needs displays the truth within our heart far more than any ritual ever can. If we seek to love mercy, then we would act as God would act. Again, two questions that we can ask and reflect on. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is a who question, and the second is a what. Who do we see in need? And again, what is our obedient response. If compassion is about sort of feeling that softness in your heart, extending your heart outward, then mercy is starting to take some of those concrete steps to meet the needs, meet the hurts that you see and are exposed to. That would be kind of how I would describe the difference between those two. Mercy is that action step. Sometimes people call it acts of mercy, you know, feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, visiting the sick, visiting those in prison, meeting needs, doing what you can, and doing more than you can sometimes. I encourage you with these questions. These are not easy to answer questions. You might need to take some time on your own to reflect on them a little bit more about what is specifically in your context. Who has God brought you into your path that's already in need 
And we're hoping that someone else, if you are the one in need, we're hoping that then someone else will see the need that you have as well and extend mercy to you. So that's number two. To love mercy is to extend God's unconditional love outward. And last, but not least, to do justice. Or sometimes it says to act justly. To do justice is simply this, to join God in making things right. To join God in making things right again. There's a caveat to this. To make things right in the ways of God. Not make things right in what we think is right, what our opinion is on what's right, what our preference is on what's right, to make things right according to God. Another way we could say this is we join God in restoring wholeness. I like thinking of justice in that way. That justice is, is looking to go deeper. It's lo- looking to not just see why are people hurting, but to understand the causes that lead to that hurt and say, let's try to do something about this. It's going a lot further. Justice is costly. And to do justice as God says in his word takes a lot of time and effort and patience. If you are looking for a quick fix, a quick rectification of problems, then you probably will be disappointed in the work of justice. See, God takes this long view. We don't like that all the time, but he is about making his world right and restored according to his will. Now today we think of justice largely as a legal thing, But in biblical days, this idea of justice, this concept of justice, was more than that. Justice, to do justice, actually involved meeting the basic needs and requirements and rights of people who were living together in community. That if there was one who was being oppressed, then the community was being oppressed. If there was one who was being unfairly accused of something, then it affected the community, and the community needed to respond to make it right again. Practicing justice or doing justice, it means that we are working to change the systems that are unjust. This is a biblical foundational idea because it is core to who God is, a just God of justice. Now, to do justice, it also means looking in the mirror and realizing the ways that we contribute to conditions that actually can promote injustice for other people. See, our world today is all about getting mine, getting what I'm owed, what I deserve, Burger King, having it my way, you know. But God's way is about going to bat on behalf of other people, especially those who have no power, who have no influence, That's what biblical justice really has at its core. Psalm 9 has this really great set of verses, number 16 and 18. The Lord is known for his justice. 
The psalmist writes, The wicked are trapped by their own deeds, but the needy will not be ignored forever. The hopes of the poor will not always be crushed. It's this word of hope. And it's one of, that, one of those things I said last week that as you read through the prophets, you're going to just hear this constant boom, boom, boom. It's a drumbeat for justice, for God's justice to reign always. And that means combating injustice in all its forms. God's people cannot pretend it does not exist because we live in a sinful, broken world. The two questions, the first is a why question, the second is a how question. Justice looks to answer these types of questions. Why does this hurt exist? But then it goes one step further, and this is the question that... um, Many, including a lot of the church, have failed to answer or adequately address. How do we address the causes? It's not always, well, they're just a circumstance of their own poor choices. That may be true in part, but it's never the whole story. Just like when you've had relationship difficulties and you're trying to explain your situation to someone Yes, the other person might have been more at fault, but it takes two to tango, or three or four or five. It's never quite as simple as what it looks like on the surface. Why does this hurt exist? Why does this brokenness exist? And how do we begin to address the causes? This is what has motivated Christians for centuries, to be involved in things like prison ministry, feeding the hungry, clothing those who are naked, housing those who are without, all of those types of things. Let me conclude with this, with a final word. Because I said before that the final word is a word of hope. And Micah provides this final word. See, God has already promised a ruler of peace in chapter 5. Now he's made his case against his people in chapter 6. He's told everyone, this is what I want. And now he ends with a final word that that faithful remnant can hold on to. It's a hopeful future. That if people would walk humbly with the Lord as their God, developing and displaying compassion and justice and mercy, then judgment does not get the final word and is not the final word for God's people. Micah 7, 7 says this, As for me, I look to the Lord for help. I wait confidently. Wait confidently actually is the word for hope. I wait confidently for God to save me and my God will certainly hear me. This is how the prophet ends, with this hopeful Reminder that we wait for the Lord. This is not a passive waiting. I've said this before. Hope is always an active thing. It's a waiting with expectation and certainty. It doesn't mean I get to sit my butt on my couch and just say, well, I'm going to hope for the Lord. If I said that to myself, I'd have to look in the mirror and say, it's not good enough. And that's not what God wants. Micah 7, 18 through 20 says this. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? 
you will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. What's that word for unfailing love? Passed. How God approaches us and how he wants us to approach other people. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Amen. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. Sisters and brothers, may you hold on to this word of hope. Not repeating the sins of old, but humbly walking with the Lord as your God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, how you have clearly said what you desire. And yes, your word can challenge us in ways that we can't always imagine. Will you help us to persevere? I pray now for this church that in these moments and days and weeks to come that you would help us to develop stronger hearts of compassion to be more aware of the ways that we can act in mercy and even some of those areas of justice where we can join you in making your world right. God, I thank you for each person here. Will you bless them, encourage them, and grow them as your people today and in the days to come? I pray this in the name of Jesus. At a particularly low point in my life, um, I had a friend who reached out to me, and God gifted her with words later on, and this is uh, a benediction that she wrote. Imagine, here, I'll raise my hand. As we leave this place to go out into the world, remember to wait for God to do the leading. Practice hospitality among our church so that you can learn how to practice hospitality in the world. Show compassion to each other and within broken and hurting families to be especially gracious and help carry each other's burdens. Show works of mercy to our community through our presence and our prayers. Pray for justice in the world, remembering and grieving along with those suffering from violence, hunger, illness, poverty, racism, and despair around the world. And respond to God's promises in gratitude so that as we are called and as we are gifted, we may join in praising God's work as we walk along the way with God's Son, Jesus Christ. Amen, and may God bless you.